Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical health, mental health, and my 5-Minute Food Facts series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host, a nutritionist with a passion for well-being. So we are indeed living in very unusual times with the coronavirus pandemic sweeping the planet, changing the way we live. Many of us are having to adjust the way we work, including me. So generally, where possible, I prefer to interview my guests face-to-face. It allows a more natural interaction and a better conversation flow. At the moment, however, I'm using Zoom to conduct my interviews, and I have done this before, but I'm still adjusting to it, so I do apologise if the sound quality is not quite up to the usual standard. It is, like for many, a work in progress. So before I introduce today's guest, I will take a moment to let you know that you can subscribe to my podcast on YouTube, hit the red subscribe button, or on your favorite podcast app, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. I'll also mention that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today I am here with Nick Muxlow. So Nick was my first ever guest in episode one of Amanda's Wellbeing podcast in February 2019. So it really is a great pleasure for me to welcome Nick back. And as some of you would already know, Nick is an athlete, a triathlon and running coach and an author. Nick has achieved many things, so I'll just select a few to highlight. He's completed seven Ironman races, including Hawaii, and his PB is 9 hours and 10 minutes. He is a state trail and ultra running champion. He's been coaching athletes for 17 years. His marathon PB, which he achieved in Hobart, is 2 hours 45 minutes. That's pretty good. (laughs) And he has won the following races – the Five Peaks Ultra Marathon, the Hubert 50km, the Cleland Ultra and the Cleland Trail Running Championships. So when it comes to endurance racing, Nick certainly knows what he's talking about. Hi Nick, welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast. Hi Amanda, good to be back. It's great to have you back. So today we are going to be discussing your latest book, Journey to Kona, How to Finish Your Best Ironman Triathlon, qualify for Hawaii and have fun doing it. Hmm. <laughs> so Nick, what motivated you to write this, this book? Uh, there are a couple of things that motivated me to write it. Um, obviously, one of the things is I absolutely love to um, help people achieve. My first book was obviously aimed at ultra marathon runners um, doing that and then this book really went back to my my roots in, in the sense of basically my upbringing was in triathlon um, and basically then allowing people to finish their Ironman triathlon and ideally be able to qualify for Hawaii and go on to finish that race which is a massive aspiration yeah. for so many people um, and then the other kind of like the second um, sort of reason that uh, it really you know, I was excited to write it and it resonated with me was because 
as a younger triathlete myself, I actually went looking for a book um, ah. to basically help guide me through all the different lessons and get a better understanding of you know, what um, I needed to do. But I couldn't really find a book that I felt hit the mark. And so this really is about fast tracking someone's knowledge so that straight away they can improve their training and make sure they've got everything in place so that they can then go and have a great race First of all, enjoy it and then, yeah, hopefully continue to improve so they can get to Hawaii. Get to Hawaii, the, the ultimate goal. One thing I really like about your book, and we will discuss it in a bit more detail, is that it's not just about the training itself. It's all about everything that surrounds the race. So what to do on race day, how you feel, what to put in your bag and the drop-offs and all that practical stuff that it's, it's quite, unless someone tells you, you don't know, do you? So it's, it's great. I love that. So your last book that you briefly mentioned was uh, Journey to 100, How to Run Your Best 100-Kilometre Ultramarathon and Love It. And Nick and I spoke about that in our previous episode. So since writing your first book and now having written your second, what did you learn about the process of writing? One thing I probably personally learned is that I actually really enjoy writing and the challenge of it. Um, and something that I can't remember if I mentioned last time, but um, when I was younger, that wasn't something that naturally came to me and I found easy. Mm. Um, and so I guess that's where when I sort of share that, um, and I'm also, or have previously been a teacher and still do teach um, every now and again, and I've sort of shared that with kids and they just take so much away from it. So what have I learned about the writing process? Well, I've learned that I actually enjoy that process and basically taking that um, idea and basically being able to then convey meaning to be able mm. to inspire people, to educate people, to get them to take action, to be able to... Here Nick says, achieve the things that they want to achieve in their life. I, one thing I love about both of your books, Nick, is that the style, your writing style is very conversational. Uh, and I think partly because I know you, when I'm reading the book, I feel like I'm actually chatting to you, which is really nice. Fantastic. I'm, I'm glad to have that feedback. And I definitely, um, you know, that's sort of my nature um, yes. to, I guess that's just the way that I like to, to work. And so it's great that that's able to come across through yeah, um, the voice that does. I have through my books. Was the second book harder or easier to write? Uh, <laughs> that's a very good question. <laughs> Um, the second book, I initially thought it was going to be easier, mm. but I probably got partway through and I realized that I had grossly underestimated what went into writing the first book and what was going to be needed to write the second book. Um, so it was easier in the sense that I knew what I was in for. Yeah. Um, it was easier in the sense that the structure was already in place, mm. um, because a lot of the structure um, came from my first book, but we were looking at um, things through a very different lens. We we're looking through them through the lens of a triathlon and a long distance triathlon, which then was what provided a big challenge because rather than one discipline, yeah. we've now got three disciplines that I had to tackle um, and to be able to then, so I had to rewrite extensive bits of it um, and basically look at the, look at things through the lens of, triathlon um in particular long distance triathlon and that provided a challenge because you need to be able to try and convey meaning um through through pages um through writing and 
that's where sometimes I start with the bike, sometimes I'll start with the swim and sometimes I'll start with the run to get the concept across and then look to actually apply it to the other disciplines mm. um, because things are sometimes easier to understand in one discipline compared to another. Um, but we can then apply that knowledge across. Yes, yes. Before we go on, I think just for anyone that doesn't happen to know, can you explain uh, what an Ironman triathlon is and perhaps by reference to the other popular distances? Absolutely. So just in case, a triathlon is a swim, a bike and a run um, and it's completed in that order, um, which is a common question I get. And the easiest way to remember that order is basically um, in terms of the danger. So in swimming, you could drown. So it's best to get that over and done with. On the bike, you could fall over, fall off, which obviously hurts a lot more than if you just fall over on the run. So that's always the consistent order for a triathlon. <laughs> um, and so then beyond that, triathlon actually occurs over four main distances. So we've got the sprint distance, which is a 750-meter swim, a 20-kilometer bike ride, and then a five-kilometer run. And that then goes to what's called a standard or an Olympic distance, and that's double that. So that then goes to a 1,500-metre swim, a 40-kilometre cycle, and a 10-kilometre run. And for those that have seen it at the Olympics, that's what uh, distance they race over there, hence it's sometimes known as an Olympic distance triathlon. And then we go from there, we step up to the longer distance races, which are a half Ironman which is a 1.9-kilometre swim and then a 90-kilometre bike ride and then a 21-kilometre run or a half marathon. Um, and then an Ironman, again, is double that. So we then go to a 3.8K-kilometre swim or a 3,800-metre swim. We go to a 180-kilometre bike ride and then we go to a full marathon, so a 42-kilometre run or 42.2-kilometre run. As you said in your introduction, your book is called Journey to Kona and Kona is like the holy grail, the most iconic of the Ironman races. Do you know why there is such mystique around the Kona Ironman? Yeah, it's, it's really because this is the origins of the sport. This is where the race was first um, basically brought into existence. Um, and so it basically started with, you know, an argument, um, so to speak, around who was the fittest athlete. Was it the swimmer, the runner or the rider? Um, and they then decided to put together the longest one-day swim event um, in Hawaii, which happened to be a 3,800 metre or 3.8-kilometre swim, the longest uh, one-day bike race, which happened to be a 180-kilometre bike race, and then the longest run, which was the marathon. Um, and so they then put it together and raced it, and basically the rest is history. Do you know when that happened? How long ago was it? Oh, oh no, you're, I can look it you're up. testing me now. <laughs> yeah. I, I meant to look that up because I was like, she's going to ask me, um, but I, I haven't looked actually <laughs> looked I'll it find up. out. <laughs> Um, and because Kona is so popular, um, you need to qualify to get in. So can you explain to us what does qualifying mean and how does someone actually do it? Yeah, for sure. So um, because it is such, well, it's the World Championships of Ironman. Um, so it's a very sought-after race that people want to go and complete for, you know, a huge number of reasons. 
And so because of that, they brought in a qualifying process. And that qualifying process means that across the world, there are all different Ironman races. So races of that distance that are um, held. And then what they basically have is a selection criteria. So at each race, they have what are called qualifying slots. Um, and that's actually based on different age groups. Um, so a race might have 100 qualifying slots. And then based on the number of competitors in each age group, it's actually broken down on a ratio so that the ratio of your chances to qualify are the same across each age group because some um, age groups, particularly in some of the male age groups in the sort of 30 to 40 year year old mark have a lot of competitors yeah. so therefore to keep the chances of them qualifying the same they have more qualifying slots than say the younger age groups in the 18 to 24 um and yeah so basically you do the race and then you hopefully if you finish well um and you finish towards the front of the field you'll then be offered a slot um to racing hawaii at kona um, but because at each race, there may be someone who's qualified earlier in the year, someone who went last year that's not keen to go. There may be someone who you know, just doesn't fit with other things they've got on. And so then they have what's called a roll down process. And you need to go the morning after the race and accept your slot. And any slots that aren't accepted, then roll down. So if, say, the first five people were to qualify, um, but someone didn't want it, that would then roll down to the sixth person. If they then decide not to take it, they're on the spot, go down to the seventh until that was finally taken. Cool. So you actually physically need to be there? Yeah, you, yeah. you have to go to um, what's called the roll down and you have yeah. to accept your spot then and there so that that process can be undertaken. And you actually pay your entry fee to Hawaii then and there um, wow. as the way in which you're accepting your slot. Um, and it's, there's a huge amount of fanfare around it. And, you know, for yeah. some people that have tried for years and years to get there, you know, there's just, there's an absolute buzz of energy and excitement. Wow. Um, and like I happened to be at, at my first Ironman, um, uh, pro athletes used to actually have to qualify as well. And that process has changed a little bit now. Um, or the way in which that process, um, occurs has changed. And so, um, I was there with all the club members sitting in this this tent at that stage and basically one of the um, qualifying slots ended up rolling through the pros. And so that then got actually distributed back to the age group competitors. So um, there's a men's and a women's side. So any slots that are for women keep to the women's side. Any slots that are for men keep to the men's side. Um, and that then got redistributed based on that ratio to a particular mm -hmm. um, age group. And it basically kept going down because a lot of people had left and then we were all still there cheering on it. You know, others that were, you know, um, participating and still looking for slots. And it got to one of our club members who just was out of the blue, not expecting to get wow. um, a spot and like just the energy and the excitement. Like I just still remember it just so clearly today. It was just incredible. Um, and so you just get these absolutely gorgeous stories that come out of it all. And, you know, people that, um, don't necessarily think that they're going to go then suddenly you get this slot and they're just so excited and just oh, how amazing um, so, so it's really good could you say i don't i have i've never been to a roll down ceremony but if you um 
say you came in 20th in your age group, you'd, you'd likely think, oh, there's no way I'd get a spot. But does it ever roll down that far? Or is um, it usually sort of up in the six, seven, eight sort of? Yeah, it's, well, as it gets more and more competitive, it's definitely staying higher and higher. Yeah. Um, but you do sometimes get, you know, this was, I guess, an instance where that, it does, re- it does sometimes happen. Um, yeah because it's just based on who's there. And so if everyone's left thinking it's all over and then suddenly a slot gets redistributed, um, wow. then that can happen. I can't say I've seen it happen again, but it was yeah. pretty special to be there when it did, that's for sure. Even when it goes, you know, even two or three slots down and someone's been on the cusp a number of times and just not quite cracked yeah. it, it's still very special. But if you've been trying for years, you could um, end up, changing age groups right as you obviously get older each time you you try and that could be beneficial perhaps i don't know yeah absolutely Mm. um you'll find that uh when you're in the younger age groups you want to be at the top of the age group and then when you're in the older age groups you want to be at the bottom of the age group and (laughs) the thing to remember though is you're ultimately racing against the same people yes as you all get older but there is obviously those variations so you'll find that people will deliberately target um trying to qualify in the year when they're at the younger end of the age group or potentially at the older end of the age group if they're younger Um, and so that also you know some fantastic athletes could go every year but they just simply can't afford that um and so then they'll use that as somewhat of a guide to then go cool i'm looking forward to going you know they might try and go every four years first yeah. every year yeah no, that makes sense because it is um who, whoever does triathlon knows it is an expensive sport isn't it yeah it's definitely an expensive sport and yeah obviously it's in america being in hawaii um and so there's you know, depending on how our dollar's going, it can make it for an expensive. Yeah, wouldn't be so good right now. <laughs> no. The dollar's in the toilet, yeah. went up in price by a few percent. Yeah. Um, Nick, do you have aspirations of ever doing Kona again? Uh, I'm not ruling it out. And yeah, um, <laughs> that's a yes. I'd, I'd, I'd still have to qualify, um, but at, at this stage... Um, I like, I love the running. Um, and there's a few things that I want to try and achieve in that space. Um, yeah. and to be able to, you know, put, I do everything a hundred percent. Um, mm. and to be able to achieve, you know, at triathlon at that level, then I would have to sacrifice, um, some of the things that I'm doing running wise. Yeah. Um, and that's where I guess I'm currently headed, but yeah. Would I love to get back there? Yeah, probably down the track, but I also know what that involves. Um, yes, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's a little scary as well. Yeah. So in the last episode together, we talked about training for an ultra marathon, And so obviously the focus of that discussion was on running. So for today's chat, I thought um, we'll try and look a bit more at some other aspects of triathlon aside from running. But just before we do that Nick I thought if you could briefly explain some of the differences in say training for an ultra marathon or a marathon just basically a running focused training compared to um, an Ironman training like what what what's different about the running itself in those different training um, protocols yeah for sure so I guess I've sort of 
you know, um, inadvertently touched on a few things and that's really the multidiscipline nature of yeah. triathlon. Um, and so the, you know, as your body can only take so much load um, in terms of, you know, in terms of running, biking and swimming in this case, or just running. Um, and so if we're just running, then we need to be aware of not pushing the body so far that it breaks down and we get an injury. And that's no different when we go to a triathlon program. But what we can't do or what we need to be mindful of is the fact that we've got three disciplines. And so if, say, as a runner, you're doing two speed sets a week and a long run um, and then maybe one additional run, that's four sets. Well, suddenly if we duplicate that, that's then 12 sets straight up yeah. for triathlon. And that's probably far more than most people can actually handle without running the risk of either injuring themselves or indeed it's an injury pushing themselves into overtraining, um, which is another challenge that's more common with Ironman athletes. So being aware of that in interdiscipline means that we have to look to how we balance the training over the week and how we actually look to structure um, both individual training sets, but also how we then look to map training sets so that we're not, say, doing a hard buy um, and how that all comes together. And so really yeah. that's the challenge with triathlon. That's why you need to see yourself, if you are a triathlete, as a triathlete and not as a swimmer, a biker and a runner, yeah. which is often yeah. a, um, a mistake that many younger athletes do. Yeah, I guess, um, that, I mean, that makes perfect sense. But I can see that, for example, if you come from a running background and you're used to running four or five times a week, I, I guess there's part of you that thinks, I'll just do that and, you know, continue to do that and then add the other stuff in. And, and as you say, there's a risk then of overburdening your body. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's probably even more noticeable if you were to come from, like say a cycling background right. um, and then you really crank, if you then really start to put a lot of kilometers in on the run um, just because of the injury concerns that can come from um, the impact of the ground through the body on the run yeah. um, is often more than the other two. So that's where you just have to be thoughtful um, of how you actually progress things and make sure you yeah. do it slowly and sequen sequentially. Yes, yes. And I guess the thing is for a cyclist coming into triathlon, they're already probably pretty fit. So uh, there has to be a bit of restraint, I guess, mental restraint to not just want to charge out the gates um, with running and everything as well. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a puzzle. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. The, probably the other one for your listeners that's quite common is a lot of people come to triathlon um, from team sport backgrounds. And so they may have played football um, as a younger athlete, say up until the age of 30, 35. Um, might be hockey. A lot of hockey players come over. Could be like netball players, mm -hmm. um, things like that. And so they've come from the team sports. And so they're very used to structured training, regular training. You know, they've got very strong um, self-beliefs and habits around that. Um, and it's just making sure that they just progress things um, so they can get through that initial phase and actually put a foundation in place yeah. so that they make consistent progress and they don't immediately succumb to, you know, long-distance um, injuries. Yeah. 
No, that all makes sense. We've talked about running, as I said, and I have interviewed a few cyclists on this podcast, but I've never spoken to a swimmer. So I think it would be interesting if we touched a bit on swimming. As you said, the Ironman swim is 3.8 kilometres and it's an open water swim. However, many triathletes train in a pool for the majority of their training. So can you just tell us a bit about how open water and pool swimming are similar and how they're different? Yeah, definitely. The, obviously, they're, they're similar in the sense that that we've got freestyle um, and we're trying to cover the ground as quickly as we can. Um, but beyond that, there's obviously probably looking at the differences is where yeah. things really start to get highlighted. Um, so if we consider a pool swim, um, it's basically in a completely controlled environment. So you've got a lane to yourself, you've got lane ropes, you've got you know the splash guards on the side of the pool deliberately designed to make it... Um, as fast as possible and as controlled as possible. Nick then says in the open water. We've basically got swimmers that might be around you. They could be tapping you on the feet. They might be swimming over the top of you. Um, We've also got the waves and the chop that naturally occur. From that, you've also then, rather than swimming in a lane rope, you've obviously got to navigate um, and be able to see your way around course. So be able to undertake turns at buoys, you know, sing, or basically being able to know when to stand up and then run out. Another big difference um, is that, you know, the the longest event in a pool swim is the 1500 metres freestyle, which is going to take them probably around the 15 minute mark. Um, and then they basically, they touch the end and they're done. That's their yeah. event over. Whereas in triathlon, once you exit the swim, you've still got to jump on the bike and <laughs> ride and then you've still got to jump on, head out on the run, um, which is when it's 180 kilometres in front of you and it's um, a marathon and your swim is well over double, if not almost triple the length of um, a 1,500-metre swim, it may be very different uh, because in the triathlon you've got swimmers around you, you can draft off them and that's when you actually basically swim behind them or sometimes swim to the side of them and because you're going in the same direction, you can actually get a real um, improvement in your momentum so the um pool swim and the open water swimmer are obviously very different as you've just described are there some technique things that um triathlon swimmers can practice that are different from pool swimming techniques yeah definitely one of the biggest things uh is basically making sure that the types of sets that you undertake are actually resembling your endpoint. so yeah. going this is the event that i have to prepare for and then actually working back to, well, that means that my training needs to look much different to what I would do in a um, sprint distance or basically if I was training for a sprint race, so a 50-metre race in the pool or a 100-metre freestyle race. Um, and so that can be doing much longer efforts. Um, it can also, one of the other things is then cutting down your rest time between the intervals that you're doing is another great way to do that. In terms of the actual technique, often what we find is that um, open water swimmers may swim with a high cadence. Mm-hmm. And so they're basically um, have their arms turning over quicker. And this can really assist in basically being able to punch through the chop of the waves um, and any weight caused by other swimmers swimming in front of you. And this can also 
uh, occurs because if you're swimming in a wetsuit, which is another difference between um, a pool swim and an open water swim, then that can actually slightly alter the technique that you use um, and may mean that you don't have such a high elbow recovery as is often seen in pool swimming. Um, and that can then basically mean that all those factors combine to give you that uh, increased cadence and things. Yeah, it, de it definitely does feel very different. Probably having all those people around you is, for me, the biggest difference. Uh, when I was in a swim squad in, in Hong Kong, Nick, um, because most of the people in the squad were training for open water swimming, um, our coach used to get us all bunched up in the one or two lanes and then just shout go and we'd just be clawing all over each other. It was just to mimic the start. It was really fun. <laughs> So the next thing I'd like to have a, a bit of a um, deeper look at is training zones, which is all about the different intensity levels of training. And it's really important for a triathlete to understand this. And in fact, you dedicate a whole chapter um, to intensity in your book. And I know there is a lot of science behind it and you probably, it, um, it's hard to explain it in a nutshell, um, but can you try and explain us? Sorry, explain to us in simple terms what the different training zones are. Yeah, absolutely. So the different training zones are basically everyone, whether you're, you know, the world champion um, or you've just, you know, decided to get into triathlon, has a range of efforts between what would be a very easy um, walk, run, or swim pace and what would be their maximum pace that mm -hmm. they could sustain. And this is really breaking um, all the paces in between that into different zones or different areas. And by understanding this, what we can then do is we can then manipulate our training to be able to target different um, zones or different areas and efforts because from targeting different areas and efforts, we can actually get uh, improvements through our physiology from what's happening at those different levels. So what that actually then looks like in practice is that uh, you've got basically what's um, a zone one, uh, which is your warm up or your cool down pace. Mm. And then from that, you go to the next uh, level, which is then a zone two, which is your aerobic effort. So this is sometimes when people refer to like an all day effort or um, you know, something you can just do forever. Yeah, easy. Um, and then if we go a bit quicker, then we go to a tempo zone, um, which is, you know, roughly going to equate between like a three to an eight-hour effort. So it's solid, um, but it's not over the top. So it's often what you'd hear people say, oh, yeah, it's just comfortably solid. That's mm -hmm. what they're actually referring to there. And then above that, we go to like a threshold effort. And this is an effort that's going to be like between a one and a three hour effort. And so that's when we often refer to this as uncomfortably solid. Like yeah. you're working and it's hard and you can't sustain a conversation there, but you can actually then do what's called going above your threshold. So then at the top of that zone is your, your threshold. And that is if you were to go as hard as you could for an hour but you could do something that takes less than an hour. So you could do for most people a five-kilometer park run or a five-kilometer um, time trial is going to take them less than an hour and therefore they'd be operating at an effort far in excess of what um, they would do if they were, say, going out for a long 
long ride or something that's over an hour. But you could then, you know, continue that and you could then do, for instance, like an 800-meter sprint around yeah. an oval or 400-meter sprint around an oval. And that would be actually harder again, but it's just not sustainable. Yeah. And so everyone has this range um, and it's just basically giving us a common language or a framework that a coach can use um, to guide an athlete in their training. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a brilliant explanation, Nick. Um, and so why then do triathletes need to train in different zones? Why can't you just think, oh, I'm going to run the marathon at such and such a pace, I'll just train at that pace the whole time? Yeah, for sure. Um, basically, when you race, you get um, a massive shot of adrenaline um, and that makes everything seem easy for a while. Um, but it isn't always sustainable. So the body uh, fatigues and that could be the, you know, fatigue because you're going too hard um, and then basically you've got to slow down because you've got too much um, blood lactate happening or um, you could, you know, for instance, sustain an effort that's too high but for a much longer period of time. And that is when you basically what you're doing is you're actually damaging muscle fibers yeah and that can then cause um basically irrep uh, damage that can't be changed or reversed over a race and that can then cause you to fatigue so that's why we need to understand the different training zones um the other reason is because this then enables us to target different areas specifically our aerobic threshold and our anaerobic threshold and if we improve those things then that's what you as an athlete would see as being faster so you can yep. get from a to b quicker so there's two real big reasons why this is needed yeah and nick does if you're interested nick does explain that very um succinctly in his book uh, and sort of leading on to that, uh, in a similar vein, you, you talk about pacing and you say it's one of the most undervalued skills in Ironman racing. And, and as you just mentioned, probably a lot of that's got to do with the adrenaline hit and um, people going out too hard. So what does pacing mean? These two concepts really tie closely together. Yeah. Um, and so... Basically, pacing is spreading your effort out over the entirety of a race so that you're not, you know, going hard over the first third or first half and then basically dying over the back half. Um, yeah. So this is where you hear sometimes people talk of a negative split, which is when you do the second half of a race quicker than what you've done the first half. And that's relevant across any race. Um, a really classic example of this is actually looking at Kyle Chalmers um, when he won the gold medal at the Olympics. Oh, yeah. And he actually went out slower than all the other competitors and he touched, uh, he turned at the 50-metre mark in about uh, seventh or eighth and then he actually came back from there and swam over the top of them all because that actually hadn't paced as well as he did. Now, that's over a 100-metre swim. Obviously, if wow. we extrapolate that out over to something like an Ironman, which is, you know, 10, 12, 14, up to 17 hours, then our ability to monitor that effort over the whole race is absolutely essential and it's yeah. going to be vital for you finishing your best race. Yeah. And in fact, it's vital to 
finishing full stop, I would say. If you get the pace, <laughs> down, you can, I mean, it's, it happens, doesn't it? People um, just simply can't finish the run. They've just absolutely hit the wall. Yeah. This is, this is what you see all the time in the marathon, like a standalone yeah. marathon when people get to the 30 kilometre mark and they're just left walking um, mm. through to the end. It's like they've done potentially hundreds of 12 kilometre runs in their life and they just they haven't paced themselves well. And so even though it's what they would consider a short distance, at the end of 30 kilometres, they're really struggling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what are some ways of practicing pacing in training then? Uh, there's, there's lots of different ways that you can practice pacing in training. Uh, anything where like a coach has given you or you, would, you read basically a training plan and you're then attempting to run using a zone system um, such as that that I've described mm. and there's lots going around is actually challenging you to work on your ability to pace yourself because you're then aiming to run at a particular pace or ride or swim at a particular pace for a you know, determined period of time. Um, you can then get into much more race-specific pacing sets, uh, which is when you might do, for instance, multiple laps on a bike. So you could set up a 40-kilometre you know, bike course and you might ride that three times and then look at your time and effort over the first lap versus the third lap. And what we're then looking at is we're looking at the difference um, or how, you know, the effort that you felt between the first and the last of those will be most insightful. Yeah. No, and that's this interesting. Is, it's like I do a lot of um, different sets like this with athletes that I work with and it's incredible to notice the change that they have in that. And that's possibly a set that's only, you know, uh, four to five hours long. So if we're starting to see fatigue set in over a set that's four to five hours, then it gives us this experience and this knowledge that we need to be much more aware of how things are going to play out over, you know, another six, seven, eight, nine hours beyond yeah. that. Part of your coaching experience is that you recommend going into a race with a pacing plan can you just explain sort of basically what what does a pacing pacing plan look like i i swear by it um as a coach and i guess the reason why that is is because as i mentioned earlier when you front up at the start line and you hear the gun go then what's going to actually occur is you're going to get a massive amount of adrenaline go uh, and then the other thing that occurs is when you race, you're emotionally tied to the outcome mm. and you've just come off, you know, a taper and a massive block of training most likely. So you feel like Superman or Superwoman, <laughs> um, but that's not necessarily going to last the whole day. And so by going in and um, having thought about this prior, we've actually managed to remove the emotion from it and so we can actually stick to the plan that we've put in place. And this is where setting up training um, situations where you actually have basic recent data and knowledge of doing this well and what often happens not doing it well, you're much more uh, likely and you've got the knowledge and the skill set to actually stick to that when you race and when yeah. it's emotional because you've actually going, oh, no, I've done this before. 
I know what happens if I don't do it correctly. Yeah, yeah. I think um, having a pacing plan is probably gives the athlete peace of mind as well to know that they can finish the race. So as many of you know, Nick, um, Nick is my coach and he's, he's coached me through two ultras, a, stage, a running stage race, um, a half Ironman, and we're currently working towards two more half Ironmans and hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, um, an Ironman next year. There's so many things I appreciate about having a coach, like including, for example, the expertise in planning the program. So Nick puts it together for me. I don't have to, you know, spend hours working out what I need to do. Um, it keeps you accountable. And also for me, it's, it's a great um, confidence booster because every single time that I've lined up at the start of the race, even though I've been really nervous, I've had the confidence and knowledge that if I stick to what I've practiced in training, I know I can finish the race. A big part of this is, is the mindset, the self-belief um, that comes from, you know, having put in the work. But mindset is, a, is something that Nick's really focused on. It's a, it's a big part of the race. And in fact, the first chapter of Nick's book is called Mental Fitness. So Nick, can you tell us a bit about why is it important to have the right mindset for an Ironman triathlete? Yeah, absolutely, Amanda. Basically, it sets you up to achieve what you're after. So if you're, um, if to improve your racing, we need to improve your training. Um, so improved training leads to improved racing is something that I'm just constantly saying. And so what we need to be able to do is we actually need to go into that with the right mindset. Um, and so this is really setting you up for success in training. And if you've then followed a training program and been able to work your way through that, then that in itself, as you've um, touched on um, and mentioned, leads into you having massive confidence at the start line that you're going to be absolutely fine um, in anything that gets thrown at you over the race and get it to the finish line. You know, from that, it's about um, how you go about achieving this is then, you know, following a plan or a program mm. um, is one of the, what I'm a big believer in and what. Uh, I, as a coach, or if you're following a, uh, you know, a program that you've downloaded, or for instance, the one in the back of my book, is that we've actually broken up everything that you need to do and achieve, and we've actually put it into bite-sized pieces so that you can achieve each of those independently, and then on the race, you're actually pulling that all together. And so this is how the mindset can basically be built um, and fostered through a training program. Yeah, yeah. So would you say even for a nervous athlete, following the training program is the way for them to cultivate the, a positive mindset? Yeah, 100%. You know, it gives them the structure that they need. It gives them the guidance of what they need. And basically it means that they can focus on the actual training versus focusing on, well, you know, what should I be doing today? I don't know what I should be doing. Mm. Um, and then if they are doing that, often what happens is they'll just go out for an easy swim. They'll go out for an easy ride. They'll go out for an easy run. Um, and there won't actually be, you know, their focus won't be attributed to different things that they need to work on. I can totally relate to that. I'm sure if I didn't have to follow your training program, everything I, I would do like, oh, just do an easy run today or 
So, no, it's good. Keeps me motivated. At the end of your book, once the um, once you've read it and acquired all the relevant knowledge, you have um, a really great detailed twenty four week training program. And the program, when you look through it, it's divided into um, several phases. The first is the base phase. Then there's a build phase, and then you peak, and then you taper. And this um, a division of training into uh, different phases is also known as periodization. And I know that there is a lot of knowledge and science that goes behind this. So can you just give us a brief outline then of what, what are the different phases about? Yeah, definitely. It's probably um, or the, the easiest way I find to answer that question um, to start off with is to say that you can't always be at your peak. And so if we can't always be at our absolute peak fitness, then what that means is we need to make sure that when a big race is coming, that we are at our peak. And so with that knowledge, it then means that we need to basically have a plan to be able to work um, throughout the year because you can't just suddenly, you know, flick a light switch and you're racing at your best. And this gives us that structure and that guidance of basically using science um, and what we know and how the body adapts to training to enable us to actually achieve that. Mm. Um, so it's the sequential and systematic structure of a training program um, to allow you to finish your best race. Yeah. In broad terms, Nick, I, I believe this book is aimed more at the um, sort of weekend warrior type rather than the actual professional athlete who already probably has a team of um, coaches and physios and things around them. So just to give a sense of what um, your week might look like if you're training for an Ironman, can you give us a bit of a, um, an outline of what a week might look like during the build phase so you've got the base behind you and you're building up your your fitness what's worth me starting off by saying is that this will be different for everyone sure um so a com a common example that i used of an athlete that i've worked with in the past um is that basically i was working with them um through to an ironman and they'd you know come to me well before with that plan um and then they decided that their wife would have a child. Um, so what their training looked like after that was very different to what it looked like before that. Sure. We still managed to achieve the outcome um, of them being able to finish their best Ironman. Um, and so obviously we need to just take that into account. Mm. So I'm always... I always answer this question with trepidation because I don't... Sure. Um, a lot of people make it sound like it's, you know, this massive amount of training that um, is unachievable when if we actually, we've made a progression, um, we've built good fitness habits um, and we've got that plan in place, then it's something we can actually progress ourselves to. So I guess with that background, then yeah. I'm happy to answer that, that question. So you're just so, saying it's definitely not a one size fits all. Oh, absolutely not. Um, you know, I've got, uh, for instance, a really good example would be nurses that I coach or people on fly in, fly out. Yeah. And what their training program looks like 
is just so vastly different to what, uh, for instance, your training program would look like where you mm. fit much more to that Monday to Friday yeah. work week, um, the weekend. So, uh, yeah, a quite a common um, sort of basically makeup is to have, we have what's called anchor sets. And so there's something that has to occur at a particular time. Um, and for a lot of people, they would then occur on the weekend. And so the Saturday might be a long bike ride and the Sunday might be a long run, um, being basically the two most important training sets. And then spread across uh, basically the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, what we then want to do is make sure that we've got at least one intensity session for each of the disciplines. So the swim, the bike and the run. And that's where we're really varying the pace that we go at to get some of those adaptations that I've mentioned earlier um, through the zones. And then beyond that, we then need to make sure that we've got a longer swim in there. Um, And so that could, for instance, happen um, like on a Monday or a Friday, because that way we're sort of giving our legs a rest before the two longer sessions on the weekend. Um, And then beyond that sort of structure, then we can start to look at increasing, you know, other additional training sets. Um, And that's where really it's going to be much more of an individual sort of approach as to when they fit, um, et cetera. So as a minimum, it's going to look like basically a a hard swim, bike and run or an intensity set and then a long swim, bike and run. Um, And how we actually structure that over the week will be different for each individual. Yeah. And apart from each individual's actual, you know, structure of their life and trying to fit the sets in, I think people have very different goals. So, for example, with my Ironman, I want to finish it. I don't want to, I'm not trying to qualify for Kona. So that obviously impacts the, the amount and type of training you do as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a few key things that affect the type of training that, um, I would do with an athlete. So what their goal is, and you know, that can be different from wanting to finish to actually wanting to qualify for Hawaii, as you've said. Yeah. It can also be based on like their training age. So maybe they're new to triathlon um, or maybe they've actually been doing it for four to five years. So really whether they're a beginner, they're an intermediate um, or they're indeed an advanced, um, I, you know, I tend to work a lot more with the beginner and intermediate athletes and then the advanced athletes um in particular you know people actually just wanting to finish their first ironman um some of the favorite athletes that i love working with because i sort of like to you know off um on lay a lot of knowledge and get them to finish that really well and then the other thing is your actual age so if someone's 20 to 25 what they're going to be capable of is going to be very different to um, like I've got a couple of athletes that are 70 to 75 years old. And so you can imagine that the recovery times and the way that I structure (laughs) sets, the amount of volume that I have in there is just, you know, so hugely different for those two ends of the spectrum. Getting old is sad. (laughs) Well, not in many ways, but in in terms of training (laughs) a little bit. And Nick, another thing you offer as part of your um, journey to Kona is an athlete quiz. So another thing that Nick has as part of his um, journey to Kona experience is um, 
a quiz, an athlete quiz that you can take online. And it's divided into the five pillars of um, triathlon training. You get a, a report that assesses you based on how you answer the quiz. And it's great because it tells you which areas you need to work on more and what you need to work on. So Nick, can you uh, tell us a bit about the quiz and how you came up with that and what its purpose is? Yeah, absolutely. The quiz really um, came about uh, through understanding that there's, you know, breaking everything that we need to do up into the key areas. Um, and initially that was uh, basically your, your mindset, um, which we've touched on, the techniques that are needed, uh, the body, so the way in which your body adapts to the training and the different uh, energy systems and muscular systems um, and the digestive system as well that you need to have trained. And then it looks at the plan or the process of actually improving. Um, and then lastly, um, that's where it originally had started there. Um, and then I quickly became, or it quickly became evident to me that, you know, those that were working with a coach were actually achieving more than those that um, weren't. And so that's not to say that, for instance, you know, I've, I've had fantastic emails from people that have read journey to Kona and achieve, you know, incredible things. Oh, brilliant. Um, but equally I'll, I'll back, you know, the way that a coach works or the way I work to be able to take what they've achieved and then even get more. And so that's really where then I put the coach in here um, and some of the different coaching techniques. And so that forms basically the five pillars that are needed um, to enable you to achieve your best um, Ironman triathlon or indeed any triathlon. Um, and so by breaking it up into those areas, then it means that we can actually look at where we need to focus and make sure that we've got everything covered so that we're not actually forgetting about something. Yeah. And so as a coach, I'm often talking about, you know, improving by 1% consistently, you know, week on week upon week upon week upon year. And so this basically gives us a framework to actually go back and go, okay, well, have we got everything covered? where are we not achieving things and, you know, therefore where do we need to um, adapt our training to improve it so we can continue to that, achieve what we're after. And Nick, can anyone take that quiz? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the quiz is completely free to take. Cool. Uh, I will, you will have to put your email address in so that I can send the report to you. Yeah. Um, which is detailed and based on the results that you give. And so from there, if you go to quiz.thekonajourney.net um, or indeed just Google The Kona Journey. Um, I'll put a link in the, in the show notes, Nick, um, to that as well. Before we, we wrap up this discussion, I will just mention that there is a lot we haven't covered today. There's a lot in Journey to Kona, like nutrition, for example. I think you'll just have to buy the book to find out and I will put a link to it in the show notes um, it's a great read even if you just want to learn a bit more about triathlon training techniques and not necessarily qualify for Kona so Nick um, as you know the final question that I like to ask all my guests is that you know if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being what would they be and Nick has has answered this question before so I think last time you said get off the couch so in other words move 
And you also said when you exercise, include some high intensity. So Nick, do you have anything to add to, to that, those comments? I'm glad you um, reminded me of that because <laughs> the first sort of thing that I that came to my mind was move. So <laughs> I'm glad that I'm consistent You're as consistent. well. consistent. <laughs> um, yeah. If, if there was something else that I would add to that, um, I'm also a big believer in like healthy eating. So to eat a healthy, well-balanced diet um, filled with an abundance of fruit and vegetables is something that I would say to, you know, make sure that you do. Um, and then probably the second thing, which uh, hopefully has come across um, in this, you know, this podcast is if anyone has a goal that they're aiming to achieve um, that's big and ideally outside their comfort zone, then basically look to break that up into smaller, more manageable chunks um, and then basically work your way through those different parts um, through a process so that you can achieve what it is that you'd love to achieve. Great. Thank you, Nick. Perfect. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. And that was Nick Muxlow, athlete, author, triathlon and running coach. Now, neither Nick nor I could remember when the first Ironman triathlete was raced, and I've looked it up, and it was in 1978. So I must admit, it's not as old as I thought it was as a sport, and it's just incredible how much it has exploded. It's so popular these days. Anyway, thank you very much for listening today, and I hope everybody stays safe during this coronavirus pandemic. While we're all staying at home a lot more, it is a great time to listen to podcasts and there are so many great ones out there. Uh, if you'd like to listen to my podcast, Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, you can subscribe on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and while you're there, click on the bell to be alerted when new episodes are available. You can also subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify or Google Podcasts. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. So direct links to all social media can be found on the subscribe page of my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. If you would like to contact me, you can send me a message via the contacts page on my website. Please feel free to suggest topics you'd like to learn more about and people you'd like to hear interviewed and I will do my best to deliver that to you. And producing the podcast is a labour of love. We put in a lot of time, money and effort behind the scenes. So if you enjoy Amanda's Wellbeing podcast and would like to make a contribution, you can do so via Patreon, PayPal or by Amazon. And this will help ensure we continue to provide you with excellent content. So please visit the contribute page on my website. Finally, please take a minute to leave a rating on iTunes. It improves visibility of the podcast and will help me source excellent guests. Thank you very much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.